Michelle Sion presents a lecture performance tracing a history of the acousmeter, Sion's term for the mysterious off-screen voice in cinema, through his own oeuvre and the works of Bresson, Lang, Sieberberg, Spike Jones and more, recorded on the 25th of August, 2017 at the Australian Cinematheque, Gourmet. Born in 1947, Michel Sion is a composer, filmmaker, historian and writer, and arguably the world's foremost thinker on sound in cinema. In the 1970s he was a member of the Groupe de Recherches Musicales, GRM, the influential collective led by composer and theoretician Pierre Schaeffer, dedicated to furthering the art of musique concrete through experiments in audiovisual communication, audible phenomena and music in general. It was at the GRM that Sion composed arguably his most famous work, Requiem, a noisy and surreal deconstruction of the funeral mass made whilst pondering the troubled minority of the living, rather than the silent majority of the dead. Tu me fatigues, laisse-moi travailler. Mais je n'allais pas le toucher, je voulais juste sentir la chaleur. Tu me fatigues Tu dis que tu veux m'aider, tu ne me laisses pas la paix. Je ne peux même pas avoir une chambre pour moi. Je fais tout ce que je peux pour que tout soit bien, pour qu'on ait rien à me reprocher. Regarde ce que tu portes. Je te l'ai repassé hier. Regarde ce que c'est devenu. Pourquoi tu as laissé Virginie entrer dans ma chambre Ce n'est même pas ta chambre. Vous pouvez aller jouer où vous voulez, vous allez dans ma chambre. Je n'en peux plus. Je n'en peux plus. Je n'en peux plus. Tout est dégueulasse ici. Regarde cette maison, elle ses jours, elle va s'écrouler. Je ne sais pas ce que je vais faire de toi. Franchement, tu n'as aucun mouvement, aucun élan, aucun. Pour aider un élan, rien. Je ne te demande pas grand-chose. Qu'est-ce que tu veux, mon chou Allez, va-t'en, je te couperai les cheveux tout à l'heure. Non, non, j'y vais, ça ne te regarde pas, ne touche à rien surtout. Joue avec tes cartes et fous-nous la paix. On va s'occuper de tes cheveux maintenant. Hein, Eponine Eponine Eponine
Tu grandis trop vite, mon chou. Good evening. Thank you. I am Michel Chion, and uh, I uh, thanks, thanks, thanks a lot for uh, to Liquid Architecture, to uh, Goma, and uh, different partners who uh, invited me and to the technical team. And uh, I will talk about uh, the Acousmetre and me. Uh, it was in uh, 1980. That's everything started for me. I had just begun teaching sound in cinema, and with the arrival of the VCR, it became possible to review fragments of films and to make experiments. In the years that followed, I wrote and directed the short movie, which used my observations. When my mother saw this film, she was a little worried. Is that how you see me? She acknowledged, indeed, some phrases she used to say, like, uh, one of these days, this house will collapse, or, and also, mon chou, uh, my sweet, with this cold voice. She recognized that the scenery resembles the house she has rented, and the story of the iron she had, that she had forgotten to, to unplug, forgotten to unplug, was a story she had told us, my brother and me, several times. The iron left left on, had burned a big hole in the wooden table. I remember this wooden table with a big hole. We, when we laid the tablecloth for lunch, we had, my brother and me, to be careful not to put anything unstable in that area. <laughs> but at last, my mother was a little reassur reassured because a beautiful woman, uh, Elizabeth Tamaris, played her. Moreover, her prediction had been realized. When she stopped living in this sad and damp house, the house was knocked down in order to build a road. The film Eponine is entirely built on the principle of acousmatic sound and on the revelation of the physical aspect, the deacousmatization. Acousmatic is a word I didn't invent but it is a raw one, and very little used. Also, it refers to a situation that has been very common for millennia, and which the contemporary media has made even more common, to hear a sound without seeing the cause. Acousmetre is the word 
portmanteau, uh, in other words, a word that has several meanings at the same time, meaning that, that fold into one another. It is made from acousmatic and être, which in French means being. In a movie, a voice is not something abstract, but a character, a being. Uh, I don't like to use the term voiceover, voice, not it's a man or a woman, of a, it's a real character in the movie. That's why I created the term acousmètre, being acousmatic, acousmatic being. This neologism contains in French a wordplay, which is untranslatable, un being, être, in the sense of a character, and maître, master, acousmètre. Indeed, like the God of what Christians call the Bible, the acousmatic character, the often masculine, is often took off the, in the imagination as being able to see everything, to know everything, to be able to be everywhere at once. Ubiquity. Often in films, in the, at the moment when the acousmetre shows itself, it loses these real or imaginary powers. It becomes a human like the others, an unbodied, unbodied voice. In my short movie, Eponine, the deacousmatization of the mother is done in several stages. The process is based on three junctions. The first junction regards the voice of the mother and her body. At the beginning, we hear her without seeing her at all. Then we hear her while seeing parts of her body. Then we hear speaking with her back to us. And then we, hear, we see her face, but she does no longer speak. And finally, in the longest shot of the film, she speaks facing her doctor, Eponine, and facing us. At this stage, I have to mention that the whole film was made in playback. Both actresses, the little girl and uh, the mother, recorded their lines in a studio a year earlier, and on stage, the actress who plays the mother heard her own voice, already recorded, synchronized her lips with the pre-recorded sound. As we may suspect, the question of acousmatic is a pure question of framing. The frame, the angles of shooting, make a cinematographic world that is parallel to the world of the characters. I call this reel the cinematographic reel. The cinema of fiction generally plays on the parallel, not the contradiction, the parallel between the diegetic reel, by which I mean the reality lived by the characters, and the cinematographic reel created by the frame. In Eponine, the second junction, no, uh, occurs between the girl Eponine and her own image in the mirror placed on one of the doors of the cupboard. At first, Eponine appears in the mirror without looking at herself. Then her little comrade Virginie looks at herself in the mirror, and Eponine looks at Virginie looking at herself. Then Eponine, who just said goodbye to Virginie, is stopped by her own image in the mirror. For the first time, she looks at herself in the mirror. This is the second junction. No, the third junction. At the beginning of the film, we discover the house in separate puzzles, as a puzzle, one by one, because each part of the house has its own sound. The corridor and the mother's bedroom on the ground floor, on the ground floor, sorry, 
are associated with the sound of a car passing by. The staircase is characterized by the sound of flowing water. The room upstairs, where the mother is ironing, has the internal sound of heating pipes. Towards the end of the film, I connect this space separated by sound and by image. We hear a bell when we are upstairs. Later, I show the bottom of the, stair the stairs, which previously was only seen partially from the top. I completed the puzzle, though no, the house is now as a wall in our minds. There is no more space to dream, and the house collapses. Of course, the script of this short movie was not only inspired by childhood remembrance, but also by the movie Psycho, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Psycho uh, begins with the story of a young woman, Marion, who steals money and run away, runs away by car. On the road, she stops an insulated motel run by an awkward young man, Norman. Norman, Shuzesh Marion, comes to dine in the whole house he occupies with his mother next to the motel. And while he goes, goes back to the house, Marion, Jeanette Lake, settles in her room. It is then that she overhears, coming from the house next door, a dispute between Norman and an, one, an old woman. No, I tell you, no. I won't have you bringing strange young girls in for supper. By candlelight, I suppose, in the cheap erotic fashion of young men with cheap erotic minds. Mother, please. And then what? After supper, music, whispers? Mother, she's just a stranger. She's hungry and it's raining out. Mother, she's just a stranger. As if men don't desire strangers. As if, oh, I refuse to speak of disgusting things because they disgust me. I have to spoil uh, the story of Psycho, sorry. The man goes back downstairs and apologizes to Marion. He explains that his mother is suffering and harmless and she, she, that he is left alone to take care of her. In this scene, the acoustic device has already started. In other words, even before the murder, the desire to see the source of the voice has been created. created. It is indeed, as a rule, the effect of any voice that is a screen in a movie because of its acousmatic character to produce the desire to go see, to go see who is speaking on the condition that the voice corresponds to a character engaged in action and not the disengaged voice of a commentator. Shortly after, after this scene, Marion is savagely murdered by a person whom, the, whom we partly see. Norman behaves as, his, as if his mother was a criminal and he cleans the scene. And his, as his mother is now at risk of arrest, Norman goes up to her room on the first floor to find her a place to hide. This scene works on the expectation and fear of both the deacousmatization of the mother that is, the revelation of her physical appearance. At first, the camera begins by following Norman from behind and goes up the stairs with him. But when Norman enters the room by the door that remains open, the camera doesn't enter because it has stayed outside in the staircase, carrying out a continuity of the same frame through the complicated movement of elevation 
and rebalancing of orientation that will make it appear vertically above the landing of the stairs when Norman leaves the room with his mother in his arms. Now, Mother, um, I, I'm, I'm going to bring something up. <laughs> I am sorry, boy, but you do manage to look ludicrous when you give me orders. Please, Mother. No, I will not hide in the fruit cellar. <laughs> you think I'm fruity, huh? And a few seconds later... I told you to get out, boy. I'll carry you, Mother. Norman, what do you think you're doing? Don't you touch me! Don't! Norman! Put me down! Put me down! I can walk on... On the last words of the mother, Norman comes out of the room, but the camera is already fixed in high-angle shot, so at the moment when Norman appears and begins to descend the steps, and when he, we hear the mother, we can only see a hazy body in his arms. Very quickly, a fading to black of the image occurs, together with a fading of the voice of the mother to silence on her last sentence, I can walk of my own. It must be remembered that a sentence cut this way and brought back to silence of an important person at the end of the scene is a rare thing in sound cinema. Hitchcock creates an expectation of deacousmatization, but he offers it to us at the same time as he compromises it. He compromises it through the distorting and distant point of view, but also by the short apparition of the image and its disappearance, in a simultaneous melting of the sound of the image, the body and the voice, at the moment where we, be moment where we believe that the elements hold together. The third moment of the mother's voice in the movie intervenes after, after Marion's sister uh, discovers the real mother, that is a stuffed mummy, and that the identity of the murderer is Norman himself, who has a double personality, acting from time to time as his own mother. Thanks to the explanations of the psychiatrist, everything is apparently resolved. But when at the end, it is announced that Norman, the prisoner, is called, and the policeman takes a blanket to his cell. The camera follows the, this policeman. The spectator still hopes to see the incestuous marriage of the voice of Norman's mother and Norman's body. Again, the mother's voice is heard off screen saying, thank you, and then the camera enters the cell. But the voice that then we hear on the face of Norman, the monologue of the mother, appears on a mousse closed like the one of a ventriloquist. Thank you. It's sad when a mother has to speak the words that condemn her own son, but I couldn't allow them to believe that I would commit murder. They'll put him away now as I should have, years ago. He was always bad. And in the end, he intended to tell them I killed those girls and that man, as if I could do anything except just sit and stare, like one of his stuffed birds. Well, they know I can't even move a finger, and I won't. I'll just sit here and be quiet, just in case they do suspect me. 
They're probably watching me. Well, let them. Let them see what kind of a person I am. I'm not even going to swat that fly. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know. And they'll say, why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. as if it did not fun our body to adopt it, in the same way that the funeral of the mother did not take place within the rules since she has been exhumed and stuffed. It's not surprising that the voice of the phantom reigns over the last image, which consecrates the triumph of the accusmetre. I asked myself, who played the voice of the mother for the production of Psycho in um, 1960? Not to mention in the credits. I searched for a name, and by searching the internet, I found three names, two female and a male one. Virginia Craig, Janet Nolan, Paul Yasmin. Several historical sources, in fact, attest that those who realized the sound of the film used three different voices and combined them in the editing process, depending on the scenes. At the end of the film, we are supposed that to hear the voice of no man's bed's mother. It is not all true, the true voice of Norman Bates himself. Why would it be less his voice than the voice that he speaks normally when he speaks to other characters? The voice of our parents are also inside us. Even if we don't kill our mother and incorporate her personality, we have her voice inside us. 30 years before Psycho, during the first age of sound cinema, the public listens to radio a lot, not only to music, news, or sports, but also to series and radio dramas. We dreamed, uh, not we, uh, the, the, the public dreamed of voices, thanks to the electric, electric amplification, which, thanks to electric amplification, sorry, came out of the loudspeakers and spread in space. This gave rise to the film of James Well, the Invisible Man, released in 1933. Herbert George Wells' novel, published in uh, 1899, inspired the movie. But the adaptation uh, transposed it into the modern world at this time with radio. The story is the story of Griffin. Griffin is a scientist who has invented a process to make himself invisible. He becomes paranoid because his genius is not recognized, so he uses his invisibility for revenge and to conquer the world, as in the scene in which he visits his friend Kemp. Not at that at that time, Claude Rains, the famous actor who plays Griffin, was not yet a known face and had only shot silent films almost unknown. This is the national station broadcasting this evening's news. Remarkable story from Country Village. 
The police and doctors are investigating an astonishing story told this afternoon by the people of the village of Iping. It appears that a mysterious disease has broken out infecting a large number of the inhabitants. It takes the form of a delusion that an invisible man is living among them. Several people have been seriously injured, probably through fighting among themselves and their belief that their opponent is an invisible man. The whole village is in a state of panic and everyone... And everyone deserves the fate that's coming to them. Panic, death, things worse than death. Don't be afraid, Kemp. It's me, Griffin. Jack Griffin. How are you, my friend? Oh, I'm frozen with cold. Dead tired. Thank God for the fire. Another movie, The Testaments of Dr. Mabuz, directed by Fritz Lang in Germany, is exactly contemporaneous with the James Wells films and of the, the golden age of radio dramas. Mabuz is an evil genius hidden behind a curtain, such as Pythagoras, the philosopher and the mathematician uh, Pythagoras, according to tradition. But when one of his henchmen rebels and dares to pull the curtain, and then tears it, there is a surprise. Since the clip is not subtitled in English, I have to translate the German dialogue. The movie is Das Testament des Dr. Mabuse, the, the testament from Dr. Mabuse. Kent, says the voice, you did not execute the, execute the order. This refusal of obedience is treason. One punishment is death. Where is this woman? Let her go, say Kent. Uh, Kent says, you and this woman will not could co come out alive from this room. Good Lord. The voice, you will not come out alive from this room. You have three hours left before you die. Tom, says the girl, what is it? Sie waren beauftragt, die Aktion gegen die Überseebank vorzubereiten. Sie haben den Befehl nicht ausgeführt. Gehorsamsverweigerung ist gleichbedeutend mit Verrat. Auf beides steht der Tod. Lassen Sie die Frau frei. Machen Sie mit mir, was Sie wollen, aber lassen Sie die Frau frei. Sie und diese Frau werden diesen Raum lebend nicht mehr verlassen. Du Sie werden diesen Raum lebend nicht mehr verlassen. Es bleiben Ihnen noch drei Stunden um zu sterben. The root idea here is that there is nobody behind the curtain but machines reproducing another voice ad infinitum. At the beginning of the speaking cinema, there were many articles on the subject of dubbing, 
especially for the film with zinging. It was suspected that when an actress or actor zank, she or she, she or he was dubbed by a hidden zinger. This is a story of a musical made musical film made in 1953, which takes place in 1927 during the beginning period of the Tolkien cinema, Zinging in the Rain. Don Lockwood, a silent film star, played by Gene Kelly, is scheduled to shoot a musical, musical film with his partner, Lina Lamont, played by Gene Hagen, another style of silent cinema. But Lina has a piercing and vulgar voice. What to do? His friend Cosmo, Donald O'Connor, has an idea. Lina will just mimic the song, and Kathy Selden, David Reynolds, Don's friend, who has a pretty voice, will think instead. <laughs> What's so funny? I'm sorry, I was just thinking. I think I liked her best when the sound went off and she said, yes, yes, yes. No, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. No, no. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, I am just about to be brilliant. Come here, Kathy. Come here, now sing. Huh? I said sing. Good morning, good, good morning. morning. Now, Don, keep your eyes riveted on my face. all night through. Good morning, good morning to you. Watch my mouth. Good morning, good morning. It's great to stay up late. Good morning, good morning to well, you. convincing. The film with Don and Lisa is shot with this technique, but Cathy is obliged, obliged to sign a contract where her name as a singer doubling Lina must remain unknown. After the successful preview of the film, Lina Lamont is asked to sing live before the audience, so though she has to ask Cathy to sing behind the curtain, Cosmo Don and the producer feel this truly unfair. Stormy clouds chase everyone from the place. Come on with the rain, I a smile on my face. I'll walk down the lane with a happy refrain and sing it, just sing it in the rain. This situation, described in the movie, was real. The singer Marnie Nixon anonymously dubbed Deborah Kerr's song in the movie The King and I, 1956, Natalie Wood's songs in West Side Story, 1961, and Audrey Hepburn's songs in My Fair Lady, uh, 1964. Three musicals. That's the face of Manny Nixon. At the beginning of the Tolkien cinema, the theme of the acousmètre was often related to the radio and the gramophone. Later, especially during the 40s and the 50s, the 60s, 70s, it is rather associated with the telephone. Horror films have made an extensive use of the theme of phone persecution. I will show a short clip of one of the best of them, When a Stranger Calls, directed by Fred Walton, in uh, 
haven't you checked the children? What is interesting there is the role of size changes in the frame. Either it narrows the space around the babysitter played by Carol Ken, or it holds the voice of the stranger in the larger space defined by the frame. He did, in the typology I have created for cinema, especially about phone conversations. These scenes belong to the type telephone number three. Uh, we hear that the urine hears in the privacy on the onset, while the, with the hair, the hair from various distances, but without seeing the color. I invite you to visit my website, michelchon.com, where you will find a glossary which explains the meaning of the word telephone and the typology I created with the six main types as distinguished. I insist on the fact that the acoustic exists only in relation to the limits of the frame. I mean a visual frame, of course, the spatial meaning. There is no so sound frame of sounds as such. Very important proposition. There is no sound frame of sounds as such. Whether rectangular, square, circular, or oval, the visual frame has in movies a double, double property. One, to define what it contains in relation to an exterior of screen, and two, to structure what it contains. The visual frame has a wonderful property of making the most banal reality interesting by an effect of composition, framing, or displacement. The visual frame also works to restrict the space around the characters and to suggest by the cinematographic reel that they don't have much space to flee. It, on this, it is on this that the impact of the famous scene of Scream, uh, 1993, uh, stands in which Drew Barrymore receives the first call from the serial killer. Recently, I showed excerpts from a film made at the beginning of Cinemascope. Uh, a Star is Born, uh, directed by George Cukor, 1954, with Judy Garland and Sense Maison, and remarked that the film does include, not include a single close-up of the faces of the character. Actually, at that time, at the very beginning of Cinemascope, on one hand, the special lenses required for close-ups were ill-suited to the scope screen. And on the other hand, the scope screen was thought for to show as much space characters background as possible in the image. Then I showed the scene where the famous scene where Judy Garland mimics for her husband, James Mason, a scene of a movie she is shooting. She mimics the close-up with a gesture of her hands, framing her face, and the image of this gesture became the poster of the film. I don't know who has this idea, but it is very strong. What does escape through his invisible space framed by her open hands? Her voice, of course. Her voice is greater than the frame and escapes from it. When my book, voice, The Voice in Cinema, was to be pub published in English, thanks to my friend Claudia Gorman, 
The question was how to translate the word acousmètre. The solution we found was not to translate it. Acousmètre, the signifier acousmètre, has had an international career, not only as a concept, but also as a brand without translation. We can find hundreds of references on the internet, quotations not only of my books. Sometimes acousmètre is written with the at, the diacritical sign that is called the circumflex accent, sometimes without. For instance, Akusmetr discovered in turn that Akusmet became the name of a rock group in Uzbekistan. <laughs> Akusmet was, uh, as briefly, the name of a Brazilian sound label. label. Akusmet was the name of a film company. Akusmet is also the title of a piece in an album of a punk band from Austin, Texas. Acousmetre is the pseudonym for internet user, etc. So, Acousmetre is, a, as today, a lot of signifiers, a free signifier, which are worked as a brand without uh, any intention of my part. Of, uh, <laughs> has nothing to do with that. It still works. Although the acousmetre in movies seems an old effect. But the acousmetre is also a companion who is associated frequently with my name. For instance, science acousmetre and deacousmatization with the uh, image of alien. And then, when do, did you first get into science? And l'acousmetre, c'est que, via my professor, etc., etc., etc. Sean, let me use a big portion of the Acousmet chapter, etc., etc. Et, finishing an article about, uh, in Finnish, about Acousmet. Finally, we can find on the internet the answer to an important question, how to pronounce Acousmet, <laughs> which is supposed to be extremely difficult. Not for me, Acousmet, okay? The second word that I invented and proposed in the same book, the anacousmètre, was much less successful, although it plays an important part in my book, The Voice in Cinema, and seems crucial to me. Thank you, my old friend on the internet, Mother Gingsling, for mentioning it. Anacousmètre. Anacousmètre is a being whose voice everyone hears, but not without seeing the body. This is a situation that we find ourselves in there for each other tonight. Possibly you are seeing me, I am an anacousmètre for you. The structure of the word anacousmètre is built from the negation of a negation. If not to see defines the condition of the acousmatic situation, then anacousmatic is a negation of the situation. Additionally, what I argued through my analysis of psycho is that the anacousmètre is an impossible being. Impossible. In the case of Norman Betts, the hero, it is because he is psychotic and split between two personalities, his own and that of his mother. But I also suggest, by creating the term of anacousmètre, that any combination of body and voice contains something monstrous. We, we each have at, le at, least, at least 
two bodies. The one in which we live, we live, and the one our voices depict, tell, suggest, and which is absolutely not the same. Just as we, we, have, we have at least two voices, the one we hear from within, and the one others hear from outside. This is why I'm critical of the way in which the philosopher, the French philosopher Jacques Derrida, describes the fact of hearing oneself speak, the fact we, which he has the merit to, of emphasizing in its importance. He describes hearing oneself speak as a phenomenon of the immediate presence of the self. It seems to me, on the contrary, that to hear oneself speak is more the experience of the disagreement rather than the experience of unity F and a presence to oneself. I'm also very critical of the famous text by Roland Barthes, the grain of the voice, and how, when speaking about the body expressed by the voice, it suggests that the real physical body of the speaker can be sensitive to one's own voice. We also know that our own voice, when we hear it, it's spoken, spoken is different to the one that others hear. Since uh, 1877, theoretically, with, with the invention of gramophone, phonograph, and for more than 50 years now, through re popular recording, we can hear all the sound from the outside. It was in the 60s that the recorder called Minica 7, launched by Philips, democratize the practice of sound recording and make it accessible for, to everyone, enabling every, anyone to hear themselves speak. In my case, my uh, Grundig tape recorder, bought by my father in Germany, allowed me in um, approximately in 57 to hear my childhood voice when I was 10, when it still was a rare experience and it has an important impact of, on my life. The French language, French language, but also uh, the English language, recognize the question of double negation through the words which serve to depict something that lasts incessantly, in discontinuously, or without the dis disruption. In my theorization, I apply the principle of double negation with the which which doesn't become an affirmation since we are as a human logic. It is not without reason, a double negation, once again, that we often say without stop stopping, unceasingly, incessant, ceaseless, rather that continuously about a sound, sound or about rain, or some other continuous phenomenon. The continuous, we may say, is what is not discontinuous. Anacosmet is thus the character was physical body one is not the physical body. The character was physical body one is not without saying, seeing, when hears their voice. In the logic of mathematics, two negations cancel each other out. Double negative equals a positive. But in human and existential logic, they don't cancel each other out. Precisely, at the same time the cinema created the acousmetre, the anacousmetre was also created. 
Here is an historical moment in cinema. The appearance, one of the first appearance of an anacrusmet on screen. It is in Anna Christie, the final version of a play by Eugene Nail, directed by Clarence Brown in 1930. And the star is Greta Garbo. In this scene, she returns from a long absence in a cafe where she goes to meet her father, an alcoholic. At this time, few uh, uh, very few people knew the real voice of Greta Garbo. At the same time, she was a big, big star. Oh, well, that's that. Give me a whiskey, ginger ale on the side. And don't be stingy, baby. Well, shall I serve it in a pail? I'll let it be down to the ground. That's all, yes, but it was a shock at the time. Because Garbo, of Swedish origin, was known for many silent films where she played the roles of French women in high society, beautiful sinners, queens, courtesans. Because of her ideal beauty, she was supposed to have a soprano voice. In fact, her natural voice not only has an accent, but it was deep and low-pitched. And this is the anacousmetre, the monster created by the superimposition of a visible body and a voice that always evokes another body. We don't pay attention to it today because we discover both at the same time. I was born in uh, 1947 and I had, as a child, a symmetrical experience of the first few verse Anna Christie's. In my childhood, it was very rare to know the faces of the acousmatic radio stars, who also presented the program and the news. What struck me when I first started doing radio in the early 70s was to see how little they resembled resembled their voices. It was around uh, 1952 or 53, between five and six years old, that I saw my first film in the cinema, my first film. It was The Greatest Show on Earth by Cecil Bedmill with Charlton Eston. As I have a good sonic memory, I remember this projection and the curious sound of the voices that spread in space, in the space of the movie theater a short moment of the movie dubbed into French. But we added uh, the English subtitles. Myrtille a toujours mal au ventre Un peu. Donne-lui du gin et du gingembre. Rien de nouveau à propos de la saison On jouera toute la saison. Pense surtout à ce que Myrtille ait son gingembre. Tu as des ennuis Oui, elle a mal à la gorge. Il n'a qu'à la lui badigeonner avec une queue de billard. Obviously, it was in the dubbed version, as I was saying, the voice provided by a French actor. I did not care of the name of the actor, and only learned it much later, 
Jean Davy. Jean Davy was uh, famous as um, on the stage, huh? but uh, he was frequently dubbing different uh, American actors, uh, as uh, Anthony Quinn or Charlton Heston. No, the same scene, but with the original sound and the real voice of Charlton Heston. How's Myrtle? Stomach. Give us some gin and ginger. Any news about a full season? You'll get a full season. Be sure Myrtle gets all the gin. Same old trouble? Yep, sore throat, all of it. Well, get a billiard cue and swab it out. In my childhood memory, the character in the French version spoke my mother tongue, French, but with a different pronunciation to what I heard in life and on the radio, I had the suspicion of the separation. It is the source of my intuition that the voice and the body together, thought as a unity, is a monstrous idea. When I was reviewing this film for this lecture, I found an image that my, in the same movie that may have marked me, me, Gloria Graham with an iron, like the mother in Eponine, and like my mother in the story of the table. Now, as you know, stars often dub characters. We can put a face on these voices. Precise face, we know. For instance, to dub the donkey in Shrek, Eddie Murphy was chosen. And they made pictures of Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy, his name is... And the, in, the, in the credits, and okay, it's known. The Anacusmetre is a monster that does not really fail as such, but a German filmmaker made it emerge with the same force that at the beginning of the voice screen, Hans Jürgen von Silberberg, when the German director created the film of the opera of Wagner Parsifal. Not only because Silberberg had the idea of taking different interpreters for image and sound, for singing and for playing, which has been done for a very long time in film and opera and musicals, but because he had the idea to emphasize this double origin of the body of the voice. During the second act, when the hero Parsifal is seduced by Condry, a temptress woman, and when he rejects air, by remembering the wound received by the knight Amfortas, strikingly, it changed its appearance. Is this short fragment when the great German actress Edith Clever plays Condry on the screen, she synchronized with the voice of Evan Minton, the singer, in playback. And to synchronize the voice of Rainer Goldberg, who thinks Parsifal, the image, the image of the young Michael Kutter, Michael Kutter uh, in German, Michael Kutter, who plays him on screen, is replaced by the young Karen Crick.
Another movie, current trick is Parsifal on screen. The question can be asked, asked is still in today's film an acousmetre in acousmetre? Maybe not. I will cite two short examples in very recent films that evoke this question. Here by, by Spy Jones and Personal Shopper, movie by Olivier Assayas. In her, The voice of the computer is that of a very famous actress, Scarlett Johansson, while in the movie by Kubrick, uh, Space Odyssey, uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, an, an unknown Canadian actor, Douglas Wren, provided the voice of the computer. There is a well-known scene in uh, Jean's movie, Samantha, the voice of the algorithm, has proposed to associate her voice to a real body of a young woman invited to meet the hero for a sexual intercourse. But Theodore, played by Joaquin Phoenix, doesn't want to. It is a reversal of the situation of many films in the past. The hidden voice is famous, while the body that is thrown is not famous. <laughs> you look so tired, sweetheart. Come here. Sit down. I could do a little dance for you. Oh, come on, Theodore. Don't be such a worrier. Just play with me. Come on. Does my body feel nice? Yes, it does.
In Personal Shopper, more recent film by Olivia Sayas, the heroine played by Kristen Stewart is haunted by the mysterious short SMS text message written by an unknown, unknown who might be the ghost of her deceased twin brother. Watching you, write the mysterious unknown messenger without gender. But just after, we read the second message, just kidding. What strikes me is this short sequence of Personal Shoppers, a film by Asayas, is that the situation, the situation evokes and imitates older horror films, notably where fear is generated through the telephone. But uh, it doesn't have the same effect. The mobile phone became popular at the end of the 20th century, at the beginning of the 21th century. Here, Asayas refused to stage the paranoia of his character and to shrink the space around her, as in Scream or as, or as in some shots of When a Stranger Calls. It has all changed. Phones are no longer attached to the Y, for instance. Everyone today uses a mobile phone, mobile phone, but at the same time, Skype and the internet allow us to very quickly see the image of the person who respects or writes. Perhaps this explains the weakening of the presence of the acousmètre in contemporary films. The words acousmètre still exist, but are they still acousmètres in the cinema? I am not sure. Everything has changed. I will conclude, conclude with an excerpt of, from a great filmmaker what allows us to hear many scattered voices, Terence Malik. In his movie uh, The Thin Red Line and in his most recent film, Zong to song, voices float, but there is no tension between body and voice. The voices in the body float in spaces of zero gravity. There is no longer attraction and repulsions, but the bodies tends, dance around each other. Uh, I have to confess that uh, this track touched me also because there is also the presence of a doctor and a mother. So can kind of circle with my movie Eponine. The scene red line, the beginning of the movie.
What's this war in the heart of nature? Why does nature vie with itself? The land contend with the sea. Is there an avenging power in nature? Not one power, but two? She was dying. Looked all shrunk up and gray. I asked her if she was afraid. She just shook her head. I was afraid to touch the death I seen in her. I couldn't find nothing beautiful or uplifting about her going back to God. I heard people talk about immortality. But I ain't seen it. be when I died.
Voilà. This recording was produced by Marish Woodfigar for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Boonwarung and Wiwarung people of the Gulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organization for artists working with sound and listening. To learn more head to liquidarchitecture.org.au